0: Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle24 with me, Carlotta Rubello. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle24, with highlights from our studios here at Midori House in London and also from around the world. This week, midterms in the United States and more chaos in the UK.
1: To coin the cliche, the, the vultures or the sharks, whichever metaphor you prefer, are circling.
2: Plus, how do we make cities more welcoming to all citizens? That is what's going to make somebody feel more comfortable, and you know when you feel it. You know when you don't feel it, too. All that and much, much more over the next hour here on The Curator with me,
0: Carlotta Rubello. We start a show in the world of literature as the winner of the Booker Prize was announced this week. Earlier on The Globalist, Emma Nelson caught up with our very own expert on the written word. The host of Monocle's prose-based podcast, Meet the Writers, Georgina Godwin, to discuss this year's Booker Prize ceremony. And she began by telling us everything we need to know about this year's winner.
3: So he is the most wonderful writer, Shihan Uh He's from Sri Lanka. And in fact, I am um, continuing a long lasting meet the writers tradition, uh, interviewed him a couple of weeks ago. And I say long lasting tradition because for the last, I think, five years, we've only interviewed one shortlisted writer of the book before the event takes place. And in every instance, it has been the winner.
4: Well, you seem to be someone who we need to be following. Um, tell us a little bit about his his book, *The Seven Moons of, of Malia Major*.
3: Right. Well, so it's described as a rip-roaring epic, a searing, mordantly funny satire set amid the murderous mayhem of a Sri Lanka beset by civil war. And it's a it's a really lovely book. The central character is a, a war photographer. He's a, a closeted gay man and he wakes up dead uh, and he's not quite sure where he is. He thinks he might have taken too many drugs and then realizes that actually he's in a kind of heavenly visa office <laughs> uh, and there are all these people sort of queuing to try and to try and get in and, and i mean it's funny too for instance he says of the the queue he says Lankins can't queue unless you define a queue as an amorphous curve with multiple entry points uh, and there's a lot of gallows humor in it and basically the seven moons refers to seven days you know seven risings and settings of the moon in which he has uh to try and contact people still left behind to alert them to a cache of photographs that are basically going to bring down the government and it's particularly um, uh, uh, um, pertinent right now because of course this is referring to to the civil war that that took place but of course Sri Lanka in 1989 uh, and uh, Sri Lanka right now is in a horrible place of turmoil once again. Tell us a little
4: bit about what the the judges said about why they chose this book in particular.
3: Well, I think, I mean, they seem to be pretty unanimous as, 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 far, as, I can, as far as I can see. So the chair of the judges, um, who was Neil McGregor, um, just really said that it was, it, he said any one of the, the six shortlisted books would have been a worthy winner. Uh, what they particularly admired about this book was the ambition of its scope, the hilarious audacity of its narrative techniques, He said this is a metaphysical thriller, an afterlife noir that dissolves the boundaries, not just of a different genre, but of life and death, body and spirit, East and West. It's an entirely serious philosophical romp that takes the reader to the world's dark heart and murderous horrors of Civil War Sri Lanka.
4: How does when you read the book, how does it leave you feeling? Oh, actually,
3: uh, quite happy, <laughs> i have to say. It's it's funny. There's a there's a good resolution in the end. You you end up knowing much much more about the civil war, but without anybody kind of beating you over the head with it. You know, it's 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 a joyous read, I would say. Although actually, you know, really really quite uh, affecting too. Now, tell
4: us a little bit more about the author. I mean, you you, you met him a couple of weeks ago, Shehan Um Just explain to us, you know, what his like, what his background is, and, and what it is that drove him to write this book.
3: Well, he's one of Sri Lanka's um, foremost authors. So he first uh, 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 emerged on the world's literary stage in 2001. Uh, that's when he went, won the Commonwealth Prize and various other prizes for his debut novel, which is called Chinaman. Um, he, he writes rock songs. He writes film scripts. He writes for various um, um, publications like the Rolling Stone and GQ and National Geographic. He's also a copywriter. He still has a day job. <laughs> he um, He studied in New Zealand. He's lived and worked here in London, in Amsterdam, in Singapore. He's back in in Sri Lanka now. And this is his long-awaited second novel. And we did do a full interview a a couple of weeks ago, which you can find on our our website. Um, And he appeared as an utterly charming man uh, then uh, and uh, and again last night. And indeed, I'm speaking to him again later today just to find out how he's found this whole experience. And one thing I thought that was really lovely was that this was uh, published by a, a very small... Independent press, and it's it's a it's a real big up for for these small small companies that you know are, are trying to trying to get great books out there, often with not a lot of cash behind them.
4: Indeed, I mean, he's he's talked about working with a tiny publisher who genuinely cares about the work and is able to give um, the story the tough love it needs. And he says he's not sure a larger publisher would have actually been as patient um, at, at, as 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 the, the experience that he had. I mean, what was what does that say about the the books? world at the moment when it comes to publishing and the health of of the literary world? Well,
3: you know, I think what we're seeing is there's a there's a, a huge rush of kind of celebrity novels, some written by the actual celebrity, others not. Uh, and, and for a big publishing house, that's a guaranteed sell. You know, if you can attach the name Richard Osmond, who does write his own books, uh, to, to something or, or Jarvis Cocker, who also does, um, then obviously you, you've Im- immediately brought in a, a big kind of rump of audience before you even start start work on the book Uh, and so that's a guaranteed sell for a big publisher it's it's an easy win Uh, but to to work with somebody who who isn't well known in this country you know he's massive in Sri Lanka but not here Um, that does take a lot of work and you are going to find that indies are much more likely to take that risk also they're not going to be able to afford the big name uh, authors and so they're going where they can pay a, a much smaller advance but in 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 the case of this book for instance it's absolutely going to pay off I mean he can expect to see what a 17 times i i think damon galgut who won last year his 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 book the promise sold 17 times more than his entire literary output ever (laughs) i think it was something like a 2,000 percent increase in sales
0: georgina godwin there speaking to emma nelson this week on the globalist Let's stick to the literary theme now, as this week's edition of Monocle on Culture drew back the curtain on literary prizes and what they mean for writers and literary agents alike, and also what it's like to be a judge on a major literary award. In the show, Robert Bound caught up with Eleanor Caton, who won the Booker Prize in 2013 for her novel The Luminaires. Let's listen in gosh I, I remember in a
4: kind of a haze of terror really I remember um, getting into the taxi to to drive to the the guild hall on the night and we were all kind of frocked up and wearing tuxedos and, and, and all that kind of thing and the taxi driver I was sitting in the front seat and he leaned over and he said are you are you all right and he pointed at my hand which was holding the handle the kind of with white knuckles <laughs> he was like are you trying to are you trying to leave this vehicle I remember it as a I have a kind of weirdly stressful time because, of course, books can't in any meaningful sense be said to compete with one another. It's kind of a, a ridiculous idea. Once you finish writing a book, it's usually a year or so before it kind of comes out into the world. There's very long lead time. And in the meantime, any number of other people might write books that you have no control over that kind of become the context into which your book is born. I mean, it's a funny thing to feel stressed out about because on the one hand, the stress is very real. The rewards that come with a prize like that are, are pretty huge in terms of enlarging your readership and your your kind of career opportunities, I suppose, your exposure as a, as a writer. But then on the other hand, there's not really anything that you're doing in a competitive sense. You're not competing. You're not like an athlete in, in any way. <laughs>
5: Yeah, I suppose once the book exists, it's out there in the ether, it's it's on all the judges' bedside tables, I suppose. It's it's doing the only job it can do, and you're doing the only job you can do, which is maybe think of the next project, I suppose. What, however, did it allow you to do, winning the Booker, I mean, it opens up presumably some opportunities in terms of sales. It's a lovely sticker to have on your book at airports and and bookshop tables across the world. But does it allow you more than that? Does it change the scope of the sort of book that you think you can write
4: I think it did for me I mean it I I was very young I was 28 when it when it kind of all happened I just turned 28 and so the next couple of years I was pretty much constantly on the road up until I was about 30 and then I (laughs) had a kind of minor breakdown (laughs) and, and, and gave it all up for a while and so yeah just the sense of responsibility that comes with it I suppose the sense that people are listening is often I mean it was in my experience it was a very sharp turnaround from from what I had expected Prior to that, I mean, you know, every writer kind of goes into their career knowing that their publisher has has taken a chance on them, and that they they're they're just kind of crossing their fingers that everything will work out. And with something like the Booker Prize, it it really turns your fortunes around in this in this major way it's a hard question to answer in a way because in a sense nothing changes in that that you're always responsible to your readers enjoyment and edification <laughs> in terms of the material reality of the of the job of writing a good book not nothing at all changes if you win a prize or if you don't i think that the kind of superficially it does feel like um you've been handed a, a, a bigger megaphone um and that can be a quite a treacherous feeling i think
5: (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's one of those things i guess the flip side of that is what does it stop you from doing i mean it's not like you're going to do a luminaries part two necessarily but does it does it sort of push you in another direction do do the kind of media demands on your time mean that actually putting pen to paper again took longer than you might have done after winning the prize
4: oh that's an interesting thought i had a, a kind of an unusual reaction to it i suppose I mean, mean, this might not be unusual, I'm not sure, but I found that period of being in the limelight, even to the extent that I was, um, very disorienting and um, alienating. And I actually um, kind of turned to screenwriting (laughs) almost as a way of trying to find a way to write as as part of a team. I really sought out more collaborative ways of working as a kind of an antidote to this feeling um, very much marooned <laughs> and, and, and uncertain on my own. I think one thing I found I found very difficult about it, but this might be peculiar to my nationality because I'm a New Zealander. I was born in Canada, but I um, the luminary is, is, is set in New Zealand and, and kind of about New Zealand history in a lot of ways. I found the particular pressure from New Zealand at having suddenly kind of become... This kind of spokesperson for my country, and this, there was this requirement that I would then paint, paint my country in a good light, and kind of be a, be a kind of a brand ambassador, for I mean, whatever a country is, <laughs> whatever a nation is. I found that a very, a very uncomfortable mantle to wear, and 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 really, really kind of chafed against that.
5: Yeah, I think it's an interesting thing you mentioned coming from a country which. Were you the first New Zealand-born um, novelist to, to win the Booker? And suddenly you have to represent uh, the, more than yeah, the just the book and yeah. more than just yourself.
4: <laughs> right, yeah. I, th- I think that, again, it's, I mean, just as the books can't really be said to compete, I think the, the idea that, that books, you know, can, they, they can't really be treated as sports teams, so they're, they're, they're just, it's, a, it's an idea that doesn't really make any sense, that um, a, a degree of subversion and rebe- rebellion and kind of... Um, you know, just wanting to make trouble is is mm-hmm. is an essential part of any um, any fictional project, I think.
5: And just finally, Eleanor, um, we've talked, sort of talked about both sides of the coin, I suppose, of winning a literary prize like the Booker. Was it nice? Though, I mean, The Luminaries is such an expansive, expansive, wonderful book, and and a big book you obviously spend a long time on it it was there something simply lovely to, for it to be recognized after having spent a lot of time on your own with your laptop let's just say in, in the writing of that book so much time in the thought in the thought of it and putting it together that it was just lovely to be recognized publicly for something that you did privately or is that too simple a way of putting it
4: definitely it's, it was such a relief you live in such terror when you're inside a book especially as a book that's growing in its manuscript form you know the the bigger a book is the the greater the the demand you're placing on the reader so the better it has to be uh, that, that that was always my my feeling about it so i was i was very nervous right before the book came out that it would um that it would kind of earn its keep and find its audience and so on and and so i'll, I'll be eternally grateful for the booker prize for helping that to happen
0: Eleanor Caton speaking there to robert mound on monocle on culture <laughs> Next up, we get political with a look at the situation on both sides of the pond. And we start in the United States, where the midterm elections are approaching fast. Our newly transplanted man in the U.S., Chris Chermak, sent the Monocle Daily this report on the way that the weakening economy and rising inflation are colouring the upcoming vote.
6: If we lose the, the foundational element of this country, our vote, our elections... Then we lose everything, and we got very close to that on January sixth, when people wanted to to kill Mike Pence and overthrow the peaceful tra- transition. This is not some throwaway line, and that's what I'm, I'm I want people in Ohio to understand. This is the crowd that J.D. is running around with, the election deniers, the extremists. I find it interesting how preoccupied you are with this at a time when people can't afford groceries, people can't afford to walk down the streets safely. Let's focus on the significant issues right now, Tim. Thank you,
7: candidates. This exchange was at a debate earlier this month between Ohio's Senate candidates, the Democrat Tim Ryan and Republican J.D. Vance. And it really sums up a particular dichotomy of the congressional election race right now this push between extremism and protecting democracy on the one hand, and those classic kitchen-table issues that dominate elections in more normal times. Over the summer, when it looked like inflation was easing back, opinion polls showed that most voters cared more about the state of democracy than they did about the economy, and Democrats looked like they just might hold on to Congress in this November's midterm elections. But now, As inflation has once again crept up in the fall, those concerns have flipped. Inflation is the bigger worry, and as a result, with just three weeks to go, Republicans have narrowed a number of races for the Senate and the House, no matter how extreme their candidates for office might be. The added problem for President Joe Biden is that he's actually pretty powerless at the moment. Much of the cause of America's rising prices stems from the war in Ukraine and the aftermath of the global pandemic, both factors that are largely outside of US control. At the International Monetary Fund and World Bank's annual meetings in Washington last week, the mood, it has to be said, was pretty gloomy.
6: The three largest economies, the United States, China, and the Euro area, will continue to stall. In short, the worst is yet to come and for many people, 2023 will feel like a recession.
7: This was the main takeaway from the IMF's chief economist, Pierre-Olivier Gourachin. President Joe Biden himself has, of course, tried to take a more optimistic line, insisting that the US will avoid a serious recession in an interview with CNN on the same day as the IMF's bleak assessment.
6: I don't think there
8: will be a recession. If it it there'll be a very slight recession. Think about what's happened. We have done more, we're in a better position than any other major country in the world,
7: economically and politically. Big recession or slight recession, this certainly is not the position Democrats will have wanted to be in just three weeks out from midterm congressional elections. And even more troubling for Joe Biden, at least from an electoral standpoint, is that the appropriate response right now isn't really something that's going to win you too many votes. Mark Zandi, chief economist of Moody's Analytics, told me that, basically, the Biden administration shouldn't be doing anything.
6: Well, I don't think fiscal policy plays a role in the United States at this point. A lot of fiscal policy uh, was done back in 2021 through earlier this year, but there's not going to be any policymaking here going
7: forward. Even more awkward in an election year is that the best policies are basically ones that slow down the economy. The Federal Reserve is doing what it's supposed to, by raising interest rates to push down inflation.
6: Of course, monetary policy is a headwind to growth, but so is fiscal policy. It is also a headwind to growth. So they both are working together to slow the growth rate in the economy, which is obviously very important to getting inflation back down. something we all feel more comfortable with. Doesn't
7: sound too hard, right?
6: Well, as we learned from the UK experience, they certainly can make a mistake. So, you know, avoiding mistakes, the whole do no harm, that's harder to do than it
7: sounds. Okay, so Joe Biden, unlike UK Prime Minister Liz Truss, gets some credit for not making a mistake. And after the big US stimulus spending spree that Zandi mentioned from back in 2021, Biden also gets some credit for taking steps that could actually help lower prices further down the line. Over the summer, Congress passed the Inflation Reduction Act, a package of measures that were designed to cut the cost of clean energy and health care. Here's Mark Zandi one more time.
6: You know, it really does three things. One is bring down prescription drug costs. Two is to help low-income households afford health care for a time. But three, and most importantly, long run, it's the first real attempt at addressing climate change. And that that should, all else being equal, be disinflationary, but that's in the long run, not in the here and now. So that piece of legislation really isn't playing much of a role in influencing inflation, certainly not in the immediate future.
7: The problem is that these kinds of long-term fixes are a pretty tough sell for voters. Voters want to see results now, not 10 years from now especially Republican voters. Republicans in this cycle not only are more likely to say that inflation is their top concern, they're even likely to feel inflation more than Democrats do.
9: Republicans are far more likely than Democrats to say that they have uh, felt um, the impact of high inflation in their own life and have felt it a lot.
7: This is Kathy Frankovic with the polling group YouGov. She says the reason for this kind of split is pretty simple.
9: Economic issues have become politicized in a way they might not have been 30 or 40 years ago. So if you ask people about the state of the economy, there are usually nowadays huge party differences. Every time there's a change of administrations, you can look at a survey done within two weeks of each other. And you have a situation where people are asked to talk about the state of the economy. Is it getting better, getting worse, or about the same? Um, Very closely related to the party of the president. And then the party of the president changes. And people just also change with that. You could think the economy is getting better if you're a Republican and Trump is in office. And once Biden comes into office, you change your opinion. The sense of the country just turns around.
7: So, the upshot for this year's midterm elections, with Biden in the White House, is that Republicans are more downcast and tend to see the economy and inflation as their top concern, while Democrats have a whole host of issues that concern them. Abortion, the state of democracy, healthcare, climate change. All of that is playing a role alongside inflation and the economy. But maybe the biggest problem for Joe Biden is those all-important swing voters, the independents polls show they're also more concerned about inflation, and they tend to see Republicans as better managers of the economy than Democrats. Whether politicians can really do anything about inflation or not. For Monocle in Washington, I'm Chris Chermak.
0: Let's head back to the UK now, as this week has been another tumultuous one for the country's Prime Minister, Liz Truss. This week, Tim Bale, the author of The Conservative Party After Brexit, Turmoil and Transformation, joined the briefing to explain why the UK's ruling Conservative Party may again attempt to change its leader.
1: This is unprecedented. We've never seen a prime minister come in and lose the confidence of the markets and the electorate in quite such short order as this. And if she's replaced, which she may be, we haven't in post-war politics seen, I think, a government replace a prime minister without uh, an election in uh, yeah, and, and two successive occasions. Well, first of all, let's consider the
8: Prime Minister as of this broadcast, uh, Liz Truss. Realistically, is there
1: any way back for her and her premiership from here? Well, I don't think there's any way back for her in terms of leading the party into the next election, and I have my doubts as to whether there's any way back for her, perhaps even this week or this month, uh, to be honest. The uh, attempt to Uh, throw her pursuers, if you like, off the scent by getting rid of uh, Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng certainly didn't work, either in terms of the market or I think the electorate, if we look at snap polling. Um, Jeremy Hunt's appointment might have calmed the markets. The initial reaction to his statement seems reasonably um, positive. But that doesn't take the spotlight off Liz Truss. Uh, She's still um, really, I think, brutally exposed uh, by this. And it seems as if, you know, to coin the cliche, the, the vultures or the sharks, whichever uh metaphor you prefer um are circling if there is a determination that if we're going
8: to do this we should do it quickly and therefore hope that the tory party's luck changes between now and the next election which could be as far away as january 2025 what would be the mechanism by which they do this because surely they cannot possibly countenance putting putting the country through yet another interminable leadership contest
1: no i think you're Completely right about that. There's no way the Conservative Party is going to inflict another full blown leadership contest on uh, the country. What they will seek to do is to cut the grassroots membership out of the contest, if indeed there is a contest. They might be able to avoid a contest altogether if they can decide on just one candidate. That's possible, but there do seem to be a fair number of MPs who are still interested in fighting for the leadership themselves. So it might be difficult to get as it were, all the crown princes or crown princesses to uh, step down in favour of a, a single candidate. But there are other options. The, the first of those other options is uh, to carry on with the parliamentary stage of the contest. So a series of exhaustive votes involving a number of MPs standing uh, and then prevail upon whoever comes second, who would normally go into a leadership contest uh, among the grassroots with the first placed uh, candidate, to stand down and therefore there would only be one candidate and therefore no need for uh, a ballot among the membership. And there is another way of doing it, and that is to set the threshold for the parliamentary contest so high that really only one person can enter. So there are a number of possibilities open to the Conservative Party in Parliament if they want to do this. The other question, of course, is whether they can actually get rid of uh, Liz Truss. Um, Nominally, she... Uh, is protected from a confidence vote uh, for a year. But again, if the party, I think, want to um, get around those rules, they can change those rules and uh, either hold that contest simply go to Liz Truss and say we're going to hold that contest whether you like it or not and hope she resigns. I mean it would be unfair to ask
8: you or indeed anybody to bet their reputations on identifying the likeliest unity candidate. There has already been a lot of jokes doing the rounds this morning about how Jeremy Hunt's address had something of the aspect of a a reassuring address to the nation from a general flanked by armed men while they deny that the president is under house arrest but is is it Jeremy Hunt or Or would one of the people that Liz Truss already defeated think that, well, now is perhaps my moment?
1: Well, I mean, I think Rishi Sunak is clearly still interested in the job. And in some ways, uh, paradoxically, uh, I think an indication of that is his silence uh, on the media uh, at the moment. Uh, I think it's also clear that Suella Braverman, uh, who was in the contest over the summer, and maybe Kemi Badenoch might be interested in taking part as well. So uh, I think, as I say, one of the problems might be uh, cohering around one particular candidate simply because there are a number of candidates who want to do the job. And you can understand why they want to do the job, because, you know, as you say, there's two, two and a half years left. Um, You know, there might be some way that they can turn things around or at least, you know, become a, you know, more than a footnote in history.
0: The author Tim Bail in conversation with Andrew Muller earlier this week on The Briefing.
10: UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different
11: countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today.
10: To find out how we could help you,
1: contact us at ubs.com.
0: On The Urbanist this week, the team visited a sixth edition of the Utopian Hours Festival in Turin. Monocle's David Stevens was there and got some time to speak to Katrina Johnson-Zimmerman from Think Urban. Katrina is an advocate for the power of women in city making and also a self-described professional people watcher. David began by asking what us
2: amateur people watchers could learn from the activity. You, too, can be a professional people watcher. It just takes practice. Um, no, but in all seriousness, you know, applying this to urban planning and architecture, it's really just one step of many in the design process. And it's just about checking and seeing, you know, what is happening in that place right now? What are people doing? What's working? What's not? How are they feeling? And then as you modify that space to meet their needs, you can check again and say, OK, this is working, this isn't working, etc. It should be a part of the natural process, but some of my advocacy work is integrating that into it because it's not right now.
11: It's got history as well in the field. Can you explain some of the background of people watching?
2: Yeah, the about last hundred years have been car-centric for our cities, and it really has shaped, as we know, the way that cities are formed and the way that it impacts people's lives. It's much less human-centered, right? So in the last 50, 60 years, with William H. Holly White and Jane Jacobs as two key pioneers, we have started to stop and look and listen and think more and really actually reimagine the city as a habitat rather than something like an efficient machine or just a place of transportation and you know, living or working and whatever, you know, it's a lot more holistic now, better public spaces, more quality of life. And also it's about equality. It's about equity. And that gets to gender equity as well right now.
11: So it's about who's watching, not just who you're watching. Correct. So maybe you could explain what are some of the ways that we don't realize cities aren't designed for women and girls?
2: So the most easy example um, that most people bring up immediately is safety. So women, in terms of safety in a city, it's just a constant thought process that we have that a lot of my male friends and colleagues and counterparts don't have. So it's just the standard you know, for us, and your experience is different, and that's okay. So we have to talk about that. We have to really think more critically about it. And by having more people behind the design, like women, like non-binary individuals, like LGBTQ+, non-able-bodied, you know, A wider diversity of people means we're going to have a better outcome for everyone. If we all feel that we have an ownership over public space, we feel like we belong, then you don't even have to think about it. So if you live in a place where that is your situation, you know, that's not for a lot of people, but we need to get to that point. So whatever we can do to give agency to co-create the built environment with more people from the ground up, listening to the community as the expert that is what's going to make somebody feel more comfortable. And you know when you feel it. You know when you don't feel it, too.
11: I suppose if there's a blind spot, putting the same person in charge, they're still going to have that same blind spot. So... It's also about making sure that there's representation across the board, I suppose. So how do you ensure that representation? It's tough. I mean, the simple answer is we'll vote for the right people, but it's not quite that simple, is it?
2: No, and I think we can start by acknowledging where we come from on the subject, right? So just knowing your own bias. We all have it. We all have our experiences. A lot of it we can't control, right? We're sort of just born into these bodies in this world. You know, there's nothing wrong, but... The ways in which we can acknowledge where we come from when we enter a space and then think about people different from us is a great place to start. The next part would be getting those people that are different than us into those positions of authority, into leadership, You know, involving them in the board and making sure that we're listening to their voices at the very least. Katrina
0: Johnston-Zimmerman there, speaking with David Stevens for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Let's turn to our sister publication now, because on the latest edition of Conflict Corner, its deputy editor, Chiara Ramella, took a trip to the Portuguese archipelago of the Azores to get a sense of the otherworldly feel of island life. She visited the central islands of Pico and São Jorge to discover how life on this volcanic outcrop informs its people's craft, food and mentality. After hours spent flying over
12: nothing but a bluish blur of the Atlantic, when you finally catch sight of the verdant Azores, it's impossible not to feel a sense of relief. These islands in the middle of the ocean between America and Europe feel like a place that many sailors would have been grateful for during their long voyages. Just before landing, it's easy enough to ask yourself, why would anybody choose to live in such an isolated place? But all you need to do is get off at Pico Airport to understand. The wild, rocky landscape gives this place a primordial feel. Things move at an instinctual pace that's dictated by nature, all of which combines to give residents a strange sense of freedom. This lifestyle has attracted plenty of people from mainland Portugal and the whole continent besides to these shores. Isabel Clerc was one of them. The former journalist turned ceramicist moved here from Paris. When we met in her workshop on the eastern tip of the island, she explained to me what attracted her to the ancient Portuguese art of azulejos and why she decided to bring this craft to the Azores when she relocated.
13: I moved here from Paris in 2017 because I was working in the industry of journalism and it was quite uh, big hard life and we were fed up with it and we had a baby and we wanted to see it a little more and uh, more seriously we already knew the azores for traveling a lot here like since 20 years and we chose the island of piku because we already knew it and we needed new life it's not like the landscapes or the ocean even if it's just you fell on the floor how much it's beautiful it's the people the people from here we enjoyed a lot we had a lot of fun with them, they are friends and when we came the, the very first time here in 20 years ago, it's a long story so I will be short but I had no keys from the house I rent here and the man who I was supposed to come with, a friend of mine, didn't come. So I was here alone without speaking any words of Portuguese, I never been to Azores before and I was welcomed by the neighbors. Everyone came to see me. So do you need a bed? Do you want to eat? You need something. I said, okay, that's a nice place. So I would say it's for the people that we are here. And then, of course, for the nature and whatever you have here, which is wonderful. But it was a question of people. The very first time I fell in love with the Azulejos was for my very first trip in Portugal mainland in 1997. What I found interesting was that the Portuguese managed to tell story with such a small square and they put it one to each other and they tell stories. And I was saying to oh, wow, that's a nice way to tell stories. I've all been drawing, so that was interesting to me. And uh, then I decided to make a school to learn it better. I make them here. I make them tie come by boat or I do them by myself. And they're glazed here. I paint on them. And the trouble is when you have uh, oxide uh, pigments, you can't correct yourself. Otherwise you have to be very creative or uh, to put your ties away. So it's better to be creative. There is no eraser or some stuff like that. The glaze will drink the pigments, always. So when you put the paint on it, which is not a paint, it's a metallic oxide, it's drunk and you have to do with it. I'm painting them here and I'm burning them here in a kiln. As I'm working, it's a very traditional technique. It's only one firing It's called alto The very high firing touch is that you you paint once on the glaze and then you burn it all together just once. You don't leave any varnish or whatever, so you put it into the kiln. You wait it to get high till 1,000 Celsius degrees. Then you wait like between 10 or 20 minutes, and then you wait it to be uh, cold again. And so that's why the tile will stay, whatever his size, like 25 hours into the kiln before you can take it back. So it's full of surprise. What will the color be? What is the chemistry into the kiln? Because there's something happening (laughs) inside that you can't even explain. And it's always a surprise, a good surprise.
12: While Clerc constructed her business by importing a craft that didn't exist on the island, for someone like Filipe Rocha, the secret was to revive a tradition that was at risk of extinction. Born on São Miguel, the biggest island in the Azores archipelago, Rocha didn't have to go quite as far for his new venture, but Pico still held a special appeal for him. This island has a great winemaking tradition that, after Phylloxera all but destroyed the vines in the 19th century, had almost been abandoned on the island. With his two partners and a lot of dedication, he rebuilt the lava stone walls that protect the plants on this windy island, and today, his vineyard Azores Wine Company makes prize bottles that appear in a steamed wine list around the world. From his sleek adega in the middle of the volcanic fields, he explains more of how the idea took root.
10: We're three guys that started the project, and our connection is related, of course, with Azores. So I was born in São Miguel Island, not in Pico, where we are. Although my background is economics, I was, since 2004, a director of a hospitality and culinary school. And in 2007, through a chef friend, that we have in common I was introduced to Antonio Massanita the winemaker and main partner of Azores Wine Company. So at that time we met because I invited him to come and teach wine and food pairing and he always wanted to do something in Azores because his father is from São Miguel Island too so that's why his connection to Azores always spent his summer vacations in São Miguel. In 2010, Antonio did his first wine in Azores in São Miguel Island from a test field of Trantes do Pico. Trantes do Pico is a unique grape varietal that was almost extinct at the time that PICO was declared world heritage by UNESCO, that was 2004. So the government made a Research on the fields and they found only 89 plants of Tejantejo do Pico. So they planted a test field in São Miguel Island to recover that grape and Antonio did his first wine in Azores from that test field of Tejantejo do Pico. So the project was really nice, just a few bottles, about 500 bottles of Tejantejo do Pico and then we did a launch in Lisbon of the wine that was 2011 so it was really nice. So he was interested to come to Pico which is the main island producing wines nowadays because in the past all the islands used to produce wine but really Pico is the one that kept this culture because it's so unique. Also because Pico is a young island geologically meaning that all the other islands have organic soil and they were able to produce other cultures that pico was not able to that's why after phylloxera the vineyards were abandoned and all the other islands started producing something else and pico didn't so we got interested a lot on the projects that were running about recovering the abandoned vineyards so more than 99 percent of the vineyards were abandoned And there were projects of the government to recover that vineyards. So we started doing a project by the end of 2014, recovering about 30 hectares of vineyards. And then we go on and on. And we ended up recovering 125 hectares, which is basically the area that Pico had in 2004. Since we started, I think it was a revolution in the island.
12: Growing wine in these conditions, on a rocky island with temperamental weather, battering wind and no-automatic machinery, is extremely challenging. But a sense of resilience, almost defiance, is a big part of what makes living in the Azores so attractive. Working here is bracing, almost adventurous, always surprising. Isn't that the best you can hope for from a day in the office? From Confect in the Azores, I am Chiara Ramella.
0: And be sure to get your hands on a copy of Monocle's newest book, Portugal, the Monocle Handbook, the first in a new series of travel titles, which is available now at monocle.com. Now, on this week's edition of Monocle on Design, we investigated why and how South Korean culture has exploded onto the global stage. To find out what exactly K-Style is, Meili Evans spoke to Fiona Bee, the author of Make Break Remix, The Rise of K-Style.
14: I've been promoting Korean culture, uh, focusing on design and architecture for the last 15 years. I had a great chance to write about the rise of the K-Style. And I wanted to take that as an opportunity to address why it has become so popular and where it's heading. So lots of interest in Korea from like arts and design and music, which is
15: quite exciting time. Excellent. And maybe let's talk a bit about some of the names you've got featured in here. So it's quite a cross section across fashion, music and I guess just the cultural scene, you've got a couple of commentators in there as well. So maybe you could talk me through how you decided who to focus on. So that was actually one of the hardest part. For my book to have a life of itself,
14: I thought we should really focusing on insider stories. So I wanted to identify real makers and shapers of K-style. So a lot of people in my book, they're actually the ones who are making a trend before anyone notices. The so Korean style is such an eclectic mix and it's full of contrast. So I wanted to Reflect that by showing people from different sectors. And we have a lot of talented streetwear brands, including like Bajo from 99% Is, who has a cult following among the LA musicians, and Issei, who are the Korean American fashion designers who approach the Korean tradition, and then they'll reinterpret it with their own eyes. One thing I found in common was how bold and brave they are. So they are the ones who are really breaking the mould and doing their own things with a uh, conviction and with a vision.
15: And you spoke there about sort of the pioneers, they've got that boldness, that bravery. Yeah. I suppose for listeners, it might be useful to kind of set the landscape, like what is it that they're being bold against or mm. what is the, the cultural context mm. that means that doing what they're doing is actually quite innovative and it is groundbreaking.
14: Yeah, so... I always thought that Korea is such competitive and fast society. So there is lots of suppression and the path for success is so narrowly defined. There is a lot of stress because it has been such a rapidly growing society. The competition is just so fierce. Based on our culture, like traditions such as like Confucianism, Koreans have been always had a great yearning for learning. And have very strong work ethics. So, to survive in this competitive society, people have been really working hard. But these people in the book are the ones who break that mold, like the standard set by the society and their family, their parents. And I think that's actually something which resonates with the young people around the world because. They see these young Koreans pioneering that attitude. And one thing was, which was quite impressive was how these young creators now arm themselves with a new conviction and new confidence and new independence. When I see young generation now, they have no baggage. They have no insecurity. They just browse whatever is cool from Europe and Japan and South America, and they will just mix it. The digital transformation has played such an important role. So it goes two ways. Korean youth are so internet savvy and well connected. So they know how to browse and absorb anything cool. But when they make something, there is this
15: very democratic tool to show it to the world. So I wanted to kind of touch on this idea of just the rapid pace Mm. It came across to me that, that, that the, the sort of the breakneck speed that everything is happening and the sort of the consumption of different media. So from creating this book, what have you noticed in, in people that aren't flash in the pan and aren't just kind of like doing lots of trends but are able to kind of carve a path that they can do in the long run? Social
14: media has definitely has double edge. It It gives a platform for people to spread out what they have created. But the uncontrollable speed and exposure... As as Peck in our book describes, it can be quite detrimental how they be, can be overexposed and it be, therefore it doesn't last that long. I think I, what I notice among a lot of musicians in my book, of course, they know what's going on out there and what's trendy. But they are the ones who really delve into them themselves to come up with something original. It's a good time. Korea is getting so much attention. So a lot of fashion brands, they have told me that until a few years ago, they didn't necessarily promote that they are from Korea. But these days, it really helps if people find out that they are a Korean brand. So they're really embracing it to be Korean. And there is explosive energy across sectors. So architects and fashion designers and photographers, they're working together for a cool project together. That's quite common in Korea these days. They feel like it's a time for us to shine,
15: so let's do this together. And, and I was struck, but actually, you speak to one designer who, who creates a lot of looks for K-pop artists and just talks about the, the amount, one, of the costumes that need to be made, but also yeah. the speed that they yeah. have to be produced. Yeah. When it comes to fashion, you've got all the elements there, you've got the raw materials, you've got the artisans who can make and produce at a really high level, at speed. The textile industry was very important part
14: for Korea's export. So naturally, even until now, in the middle of Seoul, the Dongdaemun area, we have these streets full of people who are producing garments and there are textiles available and very talented like people who are doing all the accessories. So when it comes to fashion industry, Korea does provide a very good infrastructure. And also... The speed of consumption, how we fashion and new trends is super fast in Korea. So if you see something worn by a K-pop idol today on a, a TV show, you'll be able to see that like produced on the street by the following day. That, that's how quickly we can we can produce a new, new clothes. So the production is there. And increasingly, we have a lot of Fashion designers who are trying to come up with their own style. Mischief, who does a female streetwear told me when they started about 11 years ago when streetwear was dominated by Japan, a lot of Japanese friends like look down on them for like, oh okay, so you're doing you're starting your, your brand. Now the biggest foreign fans are from Japan. Haiha is another very well-established Korean streetwear brand. And now there are brands in Japan who are copying their looks. After copying all these new trends in different countries, now we feel like they are becoming a new reference. It's going to take a while for us to maybe come up with, with something people might recognize, oh, so that's, that's Korean style. But now so many different artists, at us, fashion brands are just trying out different things.
0: Fiona Bay there speaking to Monocle's Maylee Evans. And finally today we wrap up everything else that we learned in the last week with Andrew Muller's weekly What We Learned
8: We learned this week that the standard British pub quiz question concerning the UK's shortest serving Prime Minister has been rewritten, allowing the ghost of George Canning a rest at last from nearly two centuries of relentless summoning. At which point, we're going to need a revolving door sound effect. Before we learned that despite this assertion made as recently as Wednesday
15: I am a fighter and not a quitter.
8: Liz Truss is, in fact, a quitter.
15: I recognise though, given the
14: situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party.
8: So we learned that we now await another Tory leadership contest. Which we learned will hopefully be shorter than the last epic reenactment of the closing scene of Reservoir Dogs. Although, if they could get it all bagged in time for us to write next week's monologue, that would be just dandy. Anyway. <laughs> If we did learn anything else this week, and let's face it, we didn't, it is that one does not want to mess with the Guardian reading tofu-eating Wokarati, at which point we can fill in the backstory somewhat, and we will not be dignifying with the response any suggestion that we'd already written and recorded this bit before Trust threw the towel in, and are now furiously trying to edit our way back into some facsimile of contemporaneity. They don't oh, catch on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not
0: Just rewrite
8: it. No, you shut up. So this was Home Secretary Suella Braverman on Tuesday, explaining why nothing was the fault of the people who have been in government for 12 years.
15: It's the Labour Party. It's the Lib Dems. It's the Coalition of Chaos. It's the Guardian reading, tofu eating, woke dare I say, the anti-growth that we have to thank for the disruption that we are seeing on our roads today.
8: Gone within 24 hours, she was scythed down in her prime by, doubtless, this same omnipotent cabal of sandal-shod vegan cyclists. However, we learned that this same all-powerful clique of soy-milk-slurping, ivory-towered, dwelling bunny-huggers was not done yet, with furtively manipulating a clearly helpless conservative party as further chaos was orchestrated, climaxing in the astonishing crescendo of Liz Truss's defenestration after 44 days in office, if rather few of them in charge. There was a whole thing with a House of Commons division, which either was or wasn't a confidence vote, at which the Prime Minister, as she then was, forgot or didn't forget to vote for herself. The resignation or not of the Chief Whip and Deputy Chief Whip, allegations of actual argy-bargy and a quantity more of similar undignified brouhaha before Tory backbencher Charles Walker apprehended that here was one of those febrile moments at which MPs to whom nobody usually pays any attention have a crack at getting on the news and spoke for the nation. I think it's a shambles and a disgrace. I think it is utterly appalling.
6: So, so you seem quietly... I'm,
11: I'm, f- I'm livid. And, you know, I really shouldn't say this, but I hope all those people that put Liz Truss in number 10, I hope it was worth it. More on all
8: this next week, doubtless. But sticking with the subject of dubious democratic processes producing victories for candidates nobody really wanted in the first place and who were never likely in any event to do much beyond an amount of squawking and flapping, we learned that, once again, New Zealand's annual Bird of the Year contest has occasioned controversy. i Attentive listeners to these monologues like there are any other kind will recall that in last year's New Zealand Bird of the Year contest there was a thing when it was won by a bat which while it does have two wings isn't a bird just as the fact of having four legs does not make a table a zebra in previous years there have been influxes of barely explicable votes from Russia honestly has the FSB nothing better to do and in a demonstration of the suave and subtle Sense of humour for which Australians are justly renowned, an Australian based attempt to skew the poll in favour of amusingly named waterfowl, the shag. This year we learned organisers of the poll have disqualified the fat, flightless, nocturnal parrot, the kakapo, also famous for a mating call which sounds like a party happening three houses away. We learned that the Kakapau, as a two-time winner, had been struck from the poll to give someone else a chance. And clinging even more grimly to the subject of competitions decided by voting for your choice from a field of gaudily plumed shriekers, we learned of a significant improvement to next year's Eurovision Song Contest. It's going to be shorter. We learned that Montenegro and North Macedonia had both withdrawn, citing budgetary concerns associated with having to help make up a shortfall in funding occasioned by Russia's ejection from the competition. We learned that, therefore, next year's iteration of the Pan Continental Warbling Tournament will have to struggle on without the likes of this, with which North Macedonia crashed and burned at the semi final stage this year. because something tells me you're not listening Mallet For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Muller.
0: And that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stephens and presented by me, Carlotta Rubello. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monocle 24. Goodbye and thanks for listening.